we're looking at the history of hermeneutics as studied in these different schools of interpretation. And this will kind of seem probably like the uh, Bible history classes you guys have had, and you might have even touched on some of these matters, so we won't uh, spend a ton of time on it, but we want to just touch on it to make sure uh, you have a good understanding of why people interpret Scripture uh, the way that they do. And so uh, the pastor was just talking about being sandwiched in between two wonderful teachers there on the radio, right? <laughs> and you wonder, how, how do some of these people come to understand Scripture how they do? Well, it's all based on the way that they interpret Scripture. And so your, your hermeneutics are going to govern and dictate how you teach the Word of God. Uh, and you see that with many teachers today. Uh, but in this uh, statement we see at the beginning, a knowledge of the history of biblical inter- interpretation is inestimable of inestimable value to the student of the Holy Scriptures. It serves to guard against errors and exhibits the activity and efforts of the human mind in its search after truth and its relation uh, to the noblest themes. It shows what influences have led to the misunderstanding of God's word and how acute minds carried away by a misconception of the nature of the Bible have sought mystic and manifold meanings in its content. And this is from uh, M.S. Terry and his biblical hermeneutics. And so you see, um, if you don't have something that's governing how you're going to interpret scripture, if you don't have a set of rules that says, I'm not going to go outside of this, then you can really get out of control with your imagination of what you think scripture is saying, right? Uh, everything becomes a symbol for this or that. We were talking about uh, the disciples yesterday in the number seven when they uh, picked the deacons. And, well, you could say, well, that number seven, it occurs a lot through Scripture. Maybe there's some mystic meaning behind that. Well, I don't know of anything in Scripture that says there's a meaning other than it's the number seven, right? But a lot of people do pour meaning into these numbers and their, their significance as it relates to Scripture. Um, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I don't see anything in scripture that would tell me directly that these numbers tie to anything else. Now, maybe there is some meaning that God knows and he didn't make available to us. I I don't know that. (laughs) But as you're keeping yourself bound in to what scripture says and letting it just say what it says uh, and having those rules behind it, that shows the importance of of hermeneutics. Now, uh, in the history, of course, you have people that have gone off in different directions with regard to this. Uh, and one of those is allegory. A lot of people like to allegorize scripture. You've heard us uh, speak in these terms, right? They'll make up different stories as it relates to what scripture is saying. Uh, this word for allegory uh, comes from uh, the Webster's definition of the expression by means of symbolic uh, fictional figures and actions of truths or generalizations about human existence. Also an instance, as in a story or painting, of such expression. And so you've seen people with these uh, different paintings, right? Abstract paintings. They look at them and examine them and then they tell you what it means to them. Now, the authors of those paintings intended for you to do that. The author of this did not intend for you to do that. He intended the words that he said, and we've looked at uh, several scriptures that have said the Holy Spirit breathed right through individuals to write down the very words 
and concepts that God wanted people to know. And so if God wanted you to know something different than what's in here, he would have wrote it in that manner. It's not for us to allegorize or make up stories. Um, Next one, we see the Evangelical Dictionary uh, of Theology. And we have a a sub point here at the bottom, uh, page 33. (laughs) Um, And so I don't have the definition written down there. Must have missed that one. Well, my definition, and so you have different kinds of allegory uh, that can be utilized. There's interpretive allegory and then uh, arthural allegory. And so that which relates to the author, author, boy, I cannot speak today. Uh, And so the interpretive allegory is a method of interpretation by the reader in which subjective symbolism and spiritualism are used to understand the writing of the author. And so it's going to be up to the end, end. Let me slow down. (laughs) Start over here. I cannot talk today. I'll get it out yet. It is up to the individual and what they think scripture says. Right. And so you'll read. We might have three different people in here read a passage and three different theories about what that passage said could come back. Right. And you make up a story in your mind about what you think that passage says. Uh, That's what we're looking at with interpretive allegory. The other kind is a method of writing in which the author uses symbolism and spiritualism to illustrate the true meaning behind what is written. And so here you have the author doing it rather than the reader. And so uh, I can go and kind of work both ways. Now, this all comes out of these different allegorical schools. And so there are several uh, in different origin that uh, put forth different kinds of teaching and influenced different kinds of people that uh, made allegory of scripture, right? They're not going to take scripture uh, for what it says. And so uh, the Greek schools had a heavy influence. Uh, These are secular in nature, of course, and influenced Jewish and Christian schools, uh, such as those in the Alexandrian area. It uh, is influenced by Homer and uh, Hesiod, uh, and they were steeped in religious tradition. And so uh, what do you see in most of these Greek type uh, teachings? You see Greek mythology and these multi gods and all of this uh, stuff that goes on behind that. And so polytheism was was very big with them. Uh, they influenced uh, uh, Thucydides and Herodotus uh, in historical tradition as well as in intellectualism. And so um When you look at these kind of interpreters uh, of scripture or of any kind of readings, they're going to spiritualize more. Right. They're going to make up stories about what's going on rather than actually uh, reading what's there. Uh, It is the birthplace of allegory. These Greek schools from the necessity uh, of explaining the immorality produced by Homer uh, in Hesiod. Hesiod's stories of the gods. And so as you look back at a lot of these uh, stories with the uh, in Greek mythology, you see that these gods didn't have a lot of morals, right? They would come down, they would do things uh, to these human beings because they were seen as beneath them and they didn't view them very highly, right? They would come down and, and have relationships with these women, multiple relationships and all of these things. Uh, and, and you see that all throughout play out through throughout Greek mythology. Uh, stories were not uh, taken literally. And so there was a meaning behind these stories, but it wasn't anything that you were supposed to take lit- literally. And underneath the secret meaning, 
is the real meaning. And so uh, you see a lot of these things at play when you look at people and how they interpret scripture today, right? And this is the core of where a lot of this started. Uh, there is some underlying, underlining meaning. He might have said, uh, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, but what was he really trying to say there? Huh? What, what is heaven really, and what is earth really? There's, there's a deeper meaning that he's meaning to say there, right? And so you can see how that uh, has an influence on our understanding of Scripture today. Uh, Jewish schools, these were more based in Alexandria, Egypt, and if you know anything about that area, there's a lot of intellectualism, right? They had large libraries, and uh, they even found a, a few scrolls and things there, I believe, that are, uh, were stored in that area. Um, but it's just an intellectual center. And they were instructed in the law of Moses, influenced by uh, cultural intellectualism. Uh, and you see the historical uh, slash philosophical uh, tradition uh, and then religious and poetic myth. And so uh, a lot of these things had heavy influence on the way that they uh, viewed things as they as they read it. Uh, it used alleg allegory to intellectually explain uh, their religious tradition. And so uh, these guys were not, uh, we talked about it and as we're going through the book of Acts, and you have uh, these two uh, sects of, of Judaism, right? You've got the Pharisees and you got the Sadducees. And we talked about the Sadducees and how uh, they really didn't believe a lot of the deeper things of Scripture, right? They don't believe in angels or spirit beings. They don't believe in resurrection. They believe in more of what you can see, right? And so uh, these would go even further than that, right? The, the things that they know from the traditions of Judaism are more myths than anything real, and they uh, don't let those influence them heavily. They use allegory, uh, oh, read that one, point E, influence of uh, Alexandria only enhanced what was already done by rabbis. And so as you look at the traditions uh, of, the rab of the rabbinical uh, teachings, they expanded on what was already in scripture, right? And we see this over and over again. Let's look at a couple of examples of that. We won't look at all of these, but go back to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 2. And so you see uh, a lot of these leaders of Israel uh, expanded on what the law said to where they were following these traditions more than they were following the actual law. Right. And the Lord would call them out on it. He'd say, why do you do this thing by your traditions? It doesn't have anything to do with the law. Um, but they wanted people to follow in these these different traditions. But pick it up in verse one of chapter 15 of Matthew. And there it says, uh, Then came Jesus to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Now, he didn't say transgress the law of God. He said transgress the traditions of the elders. Interesting there, isn't it? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? You see, they want to make men do what they want them to do. And it doesn't have anything to do with what, what God is asking men to do uh, in this time. And so uh, here you have them taking scripture and interpreting what they thought the law said 
and expanding on that and making these traditions that they wanted men to follow. And so you see already there are faulty interpretation by these rabbis in doing that. However, these of this, uh, these Jewish schools would even take that a step further, right? They, they would go even further than the traditions and say, oh, that's all just, just spiritual stuff that's in the Bible, uh, not anything that you should truly, truly follow unless they want to manipulate it to get men to do what they want them to. Uh, but go with me over also to Mark chapter 7 and verse 3. Yeah, that's a similar context. Skip that one. Go to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14. And we'll look at that one for the last one. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14. Now, Paul, uh, in this uh, first chapter here, uh, really goes about uh, to assert himself is not needing to follow after men uh, and pick it up in verse six. He says, I marvel that you are so removed, so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which was which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I persuade men or God or do I seek to please men for if I yet Please men, I should not be a servant of Christ, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard my conversation in the times in times past in the Jews religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of the father, of my fathers. And so you see here, it was not just the law that Paul was following, but also these traditions that had come to even uh, supersede law uh, as a requirement to be uh, a good Jew, as it were. And so you see this here. Uh, it is used uh, to make scripture uh, relevant to modern time. And so uh, what do you do when scripture runs into or uh, these traditions or anything but up against what's commonly being practiced by the people that you see? Well, of course, you change it right, to fit the people. And that's what people do even now. And so you see the importance of history because it had its beginnings back here with other other people. Uh, and we see this here. Uh, Erastabulus was one of the ones that stood out, uh, and he lived in the, around 160 B.C., uh, and writings only existed in uh, fragments and quotes uh, from other writers. And so uh, these are some of the ones from the Jewish schools. Um, it also asserted Greek philosophy and borrowed from the Old Testament and asserted Greek allegorical method uh, that can be found in Moses uh, and the prophets. And so you see here, uh, again, uh, 
one of these these build on the other. And so you had these Greeks that started with allegory and it influenced the Jews and it's going to go uh, on down the line. Uh, another writer uh, of this type uh, that you could look up would be Philo uh, and he wrote between 20 BC and uh, 54 AD uh, and believed the scriptures uh, to be superior uh, to Plato and Greek philosophy, believed scripture to be dictated uh, to the writer and reconciled his Judaism with his love for Greek philosophy through allegory. And so uh, here you see one that's very influenced right, by the Greek culture. Uh, and I actually have uh, some of Philo's writings at, at home. Um, but uh, again, influenced in that way. I lost my place there. Uh, was that on four or five? Five. Believed to uh, a literal interpretation of scripture prove an immature understanding. And so that should be underlined by you there right in your your notes. And this is where you start getting off uh, people that are going to stand and make assertions on Scripture and not say that this Scripture is infallible. Uh, you start to get off. Right. If you're to take any kind of writing that anyone meant to be serious, uh, you're going to take it literally. If I wrote to you a letter and said, this is what's going on with me. I remember when I was uh, back in the military and I first got the basic training, right? And all of this shocking <laughs> stuff is going on around me. Drill instructors are up in your face all the time. And uh, it's quite a different, uh, I don't know how different it was, but it's, <laughs> it's a little different from <laughs> what I grew up with. <laughs> but you, you have this different environment, right? You're away from home. <laughs> he was preparing me he says but this this whole different environment than what you're used to if not uh from the drill instructor from being away from your family right and not not being around them every day uh, and so you write back and tell them a little bit about your experience now what if i were to write uh to my father and tell him well you know we're getting up at 4 a.m in the morning and we're working out and going to eat and uh, they might jump in your face and yell at you from time to time and you're you're doing this and I'm telling them how all of my day is going him and my mother and they say oh okay so he's waking up at four o'clock in the morning he's waking up in his mind <laughs> and uh, he's, he's not really waking up at four o'clock but what he means is in his mind he wakes up at four o'clock and he's not really exercising or doing any of these things He's probably in his mind doing mental exercises that are preparing him for his day. And he's he's not really getting yelled at by instructors, but he's in his mind making his mind stronger to handle what's coming before him. Now, that would be ridiculous, right? None of that would would make any sense. People write what they mean to write. And when they say that they want to write something else or they want to write something uh, and jest, or they don't want you to truly understand what they're trying to say, they kind of indicate that to you in the writing, right? Same with scripture. God didn't write any of this for it to be hard for you to understand. God didn't write any of this to hide meanings or any of that stuff. If there's something that scripture doesn't clearly say, then it's for the Holy Spirit to guide you into that understanding. And maybe it's at another point in your life uh, that you come to understand that better. Uh, but that's the best illustration that I could give for you there. Uh, Philo also had around uh, 20 rules that govern how a scripture should be interpreted. Um, I'm of the opinion 
and we'll get to it later here after this history part, that your rules for interpretation doesn't need to be long, right? You just understand that you understand scripture by context, you take scripture literally, and you uh, consider the different things that are going on with scripture or the scripture that you're reading, right? And we'll, we'll get to those later, but I have my own list that uh, I use for, for kind of governing this. Uh, there's keys for uh, allegorical interpretation, which are the impetus for others. And so anything stated that was deemed unworthy of God uh, would be disregarded. And so doesn't that become very subjective when someone's telling you to follow some rules for interpretation? But they're saying that something unworthy of God uh, should not be taken. What does that even mean? What's worthy to God for you might not be what's worthy for God to me. And so you see how that can get uh, very subjective. Uh, any statement deemed contradictory with other statements uh, or causing difficulty. And then any statements uh, already allegorical in nature. And so these are uh, uh, would be impetuses for other allegory. And so when you see any of those things, you need to make up an allegory for what, <laughs> what you think it is uh, and what, what it means. Uh, so here's an example we see in the story of Abraham, and this is for uh, Philo here, the trek to Palestine, the story of a Stoic philosopher who leaves Chaldea and stops at Harem. Harem means holes. It signifies the emptiness of knowing things by holes or the senses. <laughs> we see uh, when Abraham becomes or Abram becomes Abraham, he becomes truly enlightened, a truly enlightened philosopher. And marrying Sarah was the marriage to abstract wisdom. So uh, anybody, anybody here, uh, raise your hand. Do you see any of those things stated in Scripture? <laughs> Do you get that when you're reading through Genesis and the story of, of Abraham? This, this is where you can get carried away in your philosophy and in your allegory. Right? You're bringing in what you think the meaning is rather than letting scripture say what it says and drawing the meaning out of that. And so very, very dangerous stuff. Uh, there's next a Christian and uh, patristic schools. These were influenced heavily by allegorical systems. Uh, they dominated interpretation until the Reformation came uh, and was born from the attempt to confirm the Old Testament as Christian as a Christian document. Uh, now, <laughs> Do we see any problem with that? Confirming the Old Testament as a Christian document? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Yeah, sure. Well, one thing we have to understand about Scripture is, and we'll see this when we get to our rules of interpretation, is Scripture is written to who it's written to, right? And so as we understand the Old Testament... We understand that it's the word of God, but we understand it wasn't written for us. It was written for Israel. And as you take that understanding, it's going to help you in, in uh, being able to interpret too. But you see a lot of people that take scriptures out of the Old Testament, out of the Gospels, and apply, apply, apply away, right? And why can they do this? Because they think that the Old Testament was written for them as well. Uh, and this can get into a lot of dangerous ground as you try to untangle those things that are clearly not stated to the church, right? Or in clear contradiction with some of the things that we see in the New Testament. Uh, but failure uh, of these schools, 
They were unable to understand scripture within its historical context. They were unable to understand progressive revelation. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, again, as we start getting into actual interpretation, that God is revealing things over time, right? It's like he's writing a story. He already knows the beginning and the end, but he's revealing it in pieces to different people at different times. Uh, You can call it dispensations, right? God is dealing with men back here in a certain way. And he revealed more things in the next dispensation and dealt with them in a different way and on and on and on until you get to us uh, where we're close to uh, receiving all of this information that we need to receive. But as far as as scripture, we we have that completed. Now, this is used. um, uh, They use allegory uh, to explain parables, uh, riddles and enigmas that filled the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so anytime that they couldn't understand anything, what are they going to do? They're going to make up a story for what it says. And here we go. Uh, Also believed uh, Greek philosophy to be in the Old Testament. Now, isn't that uh, interesting? Now, some of the leading names involved in that were Clement of Alexandria, Origen, who you may have heard of, uh, Jerome, and Augustine. Uh, The next school that we see is the Catholic uh, Roman schools. These accept the Vulgate as authentic, uh, 67 books plus the apocryphal books, uh, public lectures, disputations, sermons, and uh, expositions. And so one of the uh, issues, uh, I don't know what you guys have read, but if you read through a lot of these apocryphal books, They have some interesting things in them, but if you read them and then read them alongside of scripture, you'll see that they're it's not of the same quality. It's like it's a different author, which it is. Right. Because I believe God is the one that inspired these 67 books to be written. Right. And he didn't inspire those other ones. So while they might use some of the verbiage and things that you see in scripture, it's not of the same quality. And so I, if you guys have time and are bored, uh, need to go to sleep, <laughs> read some of those apocryphal books <laughs> and they'll they'll put you out. Uh, and so these uh, of this Catholics, these Catholic schools also accept the uh, given uh, authorship of the books of the Bible, uh, meanings of scripture, uh, tip, uh, allegorical or typological, typological. <laughs> the future and prophetic meanings. And so anything that related to the future, uh, they would make types or allegorize. Uh, and then uh, the future glory of the church uh, was seen as anagogical. Uh, and that's relating to, again, eschatology. And then uh, tropological, the moral uh, sense of the verse. And so these are the three ways that they uh, kind of developed the meanings of scripture as they came across them. Uh, and then they believe themselves to be uh, the official interpreter of scripture. Now, you know, if you're here for the uh, uh, Bible history class, you know how that ended, right? The, <laughs> the Catholic Church didn't want anybody else even reading the Bible, much less trying to interpret what was in it. And so uh, there were stark consequences for anyone uh, who, who did otherwise. Uh, literal schools. So we see there was a Jewish influence in some of the more literal uh, type schools. And so a literal interpretation of scripture is the preferred method unless not possible to be taken that way. 
And so that's a good way of looking at scripture, right? As you're reading through scripture, you're going to take it literally unless it would be ridiculous for you to take it otherwise, right? Uh, we're not going to say when, when uh, the Lord cast the pigs or the swine out uh, or the demons out of those swine and they ran off the cliff. We're not going to make up a story about what that cliff really meant right? or what those pigs really were. No, he literally cast a demon out of these pigs and then they ran off uh, and jumped over the ledge. Well, he cast a demon out of the man. And he jumped in the pigs and uh, they ran over the edge. Um, but when when it says that Jesus is a door. Right. In Revelation. Or he says that I am the way in, in the book of John. He's not saying that anything but that he's a method of getting from one place to another. Right. And so that should be easy for people to to uh, understand. Uh, but people can make up stories and make things to be a little bit different. Uh, some would argue that the prophets were the first interpreters, citing uh, Isaiah 43:27, And so it says uh, Jehovah held the teachers of Israel responsible for transgression. And the Hebrew noun uh, uh, lutz uh, is the word for teachers can also be translated interpreters. And so they would have taken that uh, uh, some of these uh, in the Old Testament were your first interpreters. Um, Ezra widely is considered uh, by this school to be the first uh, Jewish and uh, to be the Jewish interpreter. Uh, Jewish captivity into Babylon and Persia control uh, during his time caused an assimilation into their culture. And so if you remember the story back then, they had been taken into captivity. Right. And they took everything from them as far as the traditions and things that they could do. Uh, and when they came back, Ezra was the one, the leading man that kind of reestablished everything that was going on with Israel before. And so there was a lack of understanding of Hebrew uh, amongst the Jews when they were allowed to go back and reestablish their culture. Uh, words uh, used for interpretation. And so we see a, a letter uh, written by the Syrians against uh, Jerusalem uh, to Artaxerxes, the king, and we see this over in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 7. Uh, let's go over there really quickly. Ezra chapter 4 and verse 7. Oh, turn right to it. And pick it up in verse one. <clears throat> it says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then uh, they came to Zerubbabel and the, to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esar Hayden, king of Assur. Uh, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua uh, and the rest of the chiefs of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with this, with us to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, of king of per the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose 
all the days of Cyrus the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, or Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, uh, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabit, inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes wrote Bishlam and Mithridath and Tibial and the rest of the, their companions unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the writing of the letter was written in, Syri in the Syrian tongue and interpreted in the Syrian tongue. And so uh, you see here this writing and they're not understanding uh, the language that it's written in. And so the interpretation is also given. And so this would be uh, why he states that um, Ezra was the first interpreter. Uh, we also see it used of the answer uh, given of Artaxerxes the king in verse 18 of that same chapter. And then of Ezra reading the law to the people. So let's go over there to Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 and verse 8. Now it's interesting here that you have a generation that's been in bondage, right? And so uh, the knowledge of, excuse me, Hebrew has been lost. And so you have Ezra that still remembers it and is able to interpret it for them. Uh, but pick it up in verse 5. And it says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Benai and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akab and Shebathai and Boy, these are these names. Are gonna, I I'm going to skip over those names if you don't mind. Cause the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And so here you see not just the reading, right? They're causing them to understand because they don't understand uh, Hebrew in the way that they would have before. Uh, and so you see here in the notes, he read the law uh, distinctly. This comes from the Hebrew word parash. Uh, he gave the insight, comes from the Hebrew word sekel. And then uh, he caused them to understand. Uh, and so this word for understanding is being, uh, we see in, in Hebrew. Uh, lastly, of those kinds, we want to look at the uh, rabbinic uh, interpretation. And so these uh, principles for rabbinic interpretation or a word uh, must be understood in terms of the sentence and the sentence in terms of the context. Nothing wrong with that. Again, that's how we're going to look at it again uh, when we get down to our governing interpretations. Uh, scriptures uh, dealing with similar contexts were compared and sometimes using a third scripture to relieve any contradiction. Now, what does Peter say? Uh, over in the New Testament, no scripture is of any private interpretation, right? And so if you can compare scripture with scripture, that's going to be the best way that you can uh, utilize to understand. Because this, again, is the word of God. And if God is who he says he is, or who we say he is, and has infinite knowledge, then he meant to say everything in his word exactly how he stated it. So there must be... Uh, uh, perfect unity and, and uh, um, synchrony with, with Scripture. 
uh, I believe I'm at the top of page 11. I don't know if you guys are, uh, but we're okay. Got off a little bit there. Uh, clear passages are given preferences to obscure ones uh, when dealing with the same uh, subject matter. And so, uh, again, nothing wrong with that. Um, being able to see something clearly uh, is always going to be better than seeing something uh, very obscure. Uh, pay close attention to spelling, grammar, and figures of speech, which, again, we also uh, should do when interpreting. Uh, logic is used to determine the application of Scripture when dealing with areas where scripture is silent. And so uh, you use a deductive and implicative reasoning uh, in order to understand those. And then lastly, the God of Israel spoke the tongue of men and adapted his revelation to different recipients. And so uh, this is the way they understood it. Uh, problems, uh, they would kind of take play or uh, utilize what's called hyperliteralism or letterism. And so they didn't just read scripture and say, uh, this is what it says. They were pretty hard on it as far as that's concerned. And so this is a hypersensitivity to a proper translation of scripture that rises to the point of severity in which ones interpreting are mentally discouraged from translating anything other than the actual meaning of individual words. They, in effect, take every word of scripture for its def, uh, def, definite meaning. And so it shouldn't be defined meaning, but definite meaning. Um, and so sometimes that can be absurd, right? You can start taking things to, to such a place where it, it just gets to be a little overboard. Uh, now, I, I want to say that these are of the type um, that as they were reading through and interpreting scripture, they were so careful that they believed the world could blow up if they, if they got one of these things wrong. So they're very, very careful in how they uh, interpreted scripture. Cabalistic uh, uh, Judaism, uh, if you guys have ever heard of, of these, they're uh, a little interesting and they get into a lot of numerology and things like that too. Uh, but they were literalists, uh, believe each word came from God, so they must have infinite meanings. And so if you're dealing with an infinite God, every word that God says has to have a bunch of meanings. And this is where they get into tying a lot of these uh, numbers to words, right, and, and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, so that can go get, get a little overboard, too. Uh, they assign various meanings and uh, numeric qualities uh, for individual letters that produce deeper meanings. And if you guys, there's a website. I've looked at it before with this. Um, I'm forgetting what the name of it is with these Kabbalistic type Jews. That if you could type in a word and it'll give you several different words that relate to that word just based on the numbers of each single letter of that word. And it's, this is real stuff. <laughs> People really do this. Karyat um, uh, uh, Judaism uh, used an intellect, uh, an intelligent literal approach, uh, and produced more valuable exegetical literature. Uh, the next school that we want to look at is the Syrian school of Antioch, and in their history, they are considered the first flourishing Protestant hermeneutical school. Uh, famous names include Lucian. Uh, Dorotheus, uh, Diodorus, Theodore of uh, Mopsuit, <laughs> I will not even try that one, uh, and then Chrysostom. Uh, 
uh, and so was able to gain enough influence to temper the effect of the allegorical Alexandrian school. Uh, and so they were a little bit more literal than they were. They fought the allegory of origin, the inventor of the allegoric, uh, allegorical method, uh, by maintaining the need for a literal and historical interpretation of scripture. They avoid uh, dogmatic exegesis, the thought of individuals being the authority of scripture. And so here's a place where they go wrong, right? You, you being the interpreter of scripture are going to be the ultimate authority. No, the authority comes from the word of God and it's, it's his. And so we're, we're just kind of uh, passing along the message of what he said uh, and insisted upon the reality uh, of Old Testament scripture. And so uh, they also were involved in some uh, literalism and so plain uh, literal interpretations uh, are the straightforward meaning of a sentence or verse and those were uh, there those were there is no need for any uh, interpretation but literal and so uh, makes sense right if, if there's not any need to go any deeper you're not gonna to go any deeper than that uh, figurative literal interpretation was another approach they use and this is where uh, there are metaphors and figures of speech that raise the need uh, for the reader to interpret uh, example the eye of the Lord is upon thee is is the eye of the Lord literally hovering over the earth looking at you <laughs> do you see an eyeball in the in the sky no it's it's that he sees everything you do and so uh, you can see that their their approach was used uh, or to use a, a type typological approach to the Old Testament as opposed to the allegorical approach they saw most of the Old Testament scripture as messianic or, or in other words pointing to the advent of Christ uh, and the bond between the Old and New Testament, they saw it as progressive re revelation and a literal and historical exegesis of messianic passages. And so uh, nothing wrong with either, any of those things. Um, the Victorines in uh, number three was the next school. These existed in uh, Abbey of St. Victor in Paris during the medieval period and were influenced by Jewish literalism. Their exegesis, they required liberal arts, uh, required history, and required geography. And so if you're gonna understand uh, scripture from their point of view, you need to have exposure in all of those things. The literal interpretation was a basic uh, study of the Bible. Uh, the mystical and spiritual sense could not be truly known until after literal, a literal interpretation. And then exegesis, not eisegesis. They believe that you take out of what's in Scripture rather than reading into it. Uh, the Reformers, we have a little uh, less notes on them, but uh, we see that they, their hermeneutical theories were influenced by the Syrian school. Hermeneutical Reformation in Europe was preceded by the Ecclesiastical Reformation. And so understand what's going on here. The church, and again, hearkening back to your church history class, is undergoing a reform, right? They're breaking away from the Catholic church and establishing things that they believe uh, to scripture to be saying themselves. And so the philosophical system uh, of Ockham is, is one of, and you might have heard of Ockham before, not sure, but this is William Ockham or William Oakham, uh, and he was around from 1280 to 1349. 
He was known to be an opponent of the Roman church, uh, priest, St. Thomas Aquinas. And so if you've ever heard of St. Thomas Aquinas, he was quite an interesting uh, fellow, and this guy was his opponent. Uh, he separates revelation from human reason, which is not a bad thing. Uh, human reason uh, is relating to nature, philosophy, and science, whereas revelation is uh, salvation and the, uh, theology uh, received through faith. He differed from Aquinas in the separation of the two as Aquinas merged them with uh, a category he called natural religion. In the orig uh, origin of revelation, uh, any theological dogma came from or by d divine revelation. Uh, what can be known of God came by divine revelation and not human re reasoning. And so, again, uh, good approaches there <laughs> against uh, a lot of the liberal stuff that was coming out of the Catholic Church. Uh, and then the renewal of, of linguistic study, uh, Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament was printed in 1494 uh, and aided by uh, Johann Rocklin, uh, translation from David Kimmey's Hebrew grammar into Latin in 1506. And Greek uh, is aided by uh, Erasmus. If you've gone over to, uh, I don't know if it's even open anymore, uh, the Holy Land experience there uh, in Orlando, they had a wonderful setup to kind of show a lot of these uh, uh, teachers and, and how they got these um, uh, text translated, uh, and Erasmus was one that they had a nice little setup for over there. Um, again, I don't, are they open anymore? Are they? Okay. Uh, and so this was in 1516, uh, the publishing of the first Greek uh, New Testament. Uh, Martin Luther's uh, hermeneutical principles, and so uh, Martin Luther, I'm sure you guys all know of, uh, and so he utilized the, the philosophical principle uh, which was the essentiality of faith and illumination to interpretation, the essentiality of the leading of the spirit, and the inspiration of scripture demanded a spiritual approach. Now, uh, this would have been a huge break from what you're seeing with the Catholic Church, right, where you're just supposed to listen to what the, the priest says and <laughs> whatever they say, that's what the word of God says and just take my word for it, right? Uh, much different approach here. The authority uh, principle, scripture is the final authority on matters of theology. Scripture is the final authority on matters of the church. And scripture can't be overruled uh, in any way by any man. Now, again, that flies <laughs> pretty hard in the face of what was being taught by the Catholic Church. And you can see why they uh, wanted to persecute them. Uh, the literal uh, principle, rejection of allegory, it rejected the right of the pope to allegorize. Uh, accepted allegory where Christ was in the content was in content and not completely free from allegorizing. And so he still did have their troubles, even though, uh, you know, with the story of Martin Luther, most of the things that they were wanting uh, to change from was the Pope being the center of, of everything. Right. And being the final word on uh, or authority on scripture. Uh, but they still had their their fallacies as well. Uh, acceptation of the primacy of the original languages. And so uh, they understood that the original languages were very important uh, in being able to understand scripture. And so original revelation must be recovered from the original languages. It is believed, uh, a, believed, a, uh, believed it would be 
and effective in combating uh, heresy without knowledge of the original languages. And so uh, you can see that clearly uh, through a lot of things we point out in Scripture, right? Where, where a lot of these uh, denominations and things differ today, a lot of it's going to be based on the original language and having a good understanding and handle on uh, what the language is actually, actually saying. And so that's not, not wrong there. Uh, historical and grammatical principle. Part of the literal uh, principle, and this is the interpreter must attend to grammar. The interpreter must attend to history, uh, the times and circumstances or conditions, and the, circum uh, the interpreter must attend to context. And again, those are things I would, would all agree with on each of those. Uh, the sufficiency principle is the competence of the believer to study the word of God, the clarity of scripture. And so uh, what, is, what was the Catholic Church saying at this time? You, you little guy there, you can't handle scripture. Leave that to us, <laughs> the ones that know what it's really saying. And so he was fighting back against that. Uh, scripture is clear enough in his uh, assertion for people to understand. And that was true. Uh, necessary to uh, be interpreted by the Roman Church. The priesthood of the believers allowed uh, for understanding and the interpretation of scripture by scripture. Again, scripture interprets itself. Uh, the Christological principle. The interpretation ends with finding Christ, uh, the function of all interpretation. Christ is uh, whom all scripture concerns. And then the views of, uh, the views of principle. Uh, we see that neo-Orthodox Luther used this principle as a way around the fact that he was not holding the verbal inspiration of Scripture and the Orthodox Lutheran, uh, strictly a hermeneutical view and not a biblical uh, criticism. Uh, and then lastly, and I want to think close out here. Well, yeah, let's let's close out with that last one. Um, the law got the law gospel principle because I want to leave just a little bit next week and we're going to get back into uh, past this history stuff and get back into some of the uh, interpretive principles uh, but the law uh, gospel principle uh, the attempt of Luther to make a distinction between the law uh, and the gospel uh, the comparison between the Roman church and the Galatian church and so the Galatian church uh, saw Galatians as ones using uh, circumstances to seal the Old Testament covenant uh, and saw the Galatians, saw the Galatians as placing faith in Christ for the new covenant uh, to salvation. Uh, the Roman uh, Catholic Church saw them as using religious works to justify themselves and saw them as using faith after religious works. And so the careful distinction between law and the gospel, any fusion of the two was wrong and any repudiation of the law was wrong. Uh, here's our famous word that you <laughs> see the pastor I use from time to time that people use as a criticism when you speak against the law, right? Antinomianism. Uh, and then the purpose, law uh, is to lead to repentance through guilt and the gospel is God's grace and power to save. And so next week we want to come back and we'll look at uh, John Calvin and some of these others and we'll uh, close out with this history of interpretation and move into uh, some actual application of interpretation.